A reading from the second book of Kings. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent envoys to Hezekiah with this message. Thus shall you say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God on whom you rely deceive you by saying that Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. You have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all other countries. They doomed them. Will you then be saved? Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spreading it out before him, he prayed in the Lord's presence. O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned upon the cherubim. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to taunt the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and cast their gods into the fire. They destroyed them because they were not gods, but the work of human hands, wood and stone. Therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from the power of this man, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent this message to Hezekiah. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, in answer to your prayer for help against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have listened. This is the word the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you, laughs you to scorn, the virgin daughter Zion. Behind you she wags her head, daughter Jerusalem. For out of Jerusalem shall come a remnant, and from Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not reach this city, nor shoot an arrow at it, nor come up before it with a shield, nor cast up siege works against it. He shall return by the same way he came, without entering the city, says the Lord. I will shield and save this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. That night, the angel of the Lord went forth and struck down 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, broke camp and went back home to Nineveh. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> I've asked this several times over the last couple weeks, but let me ask again. How many of you have no idea what was going on in that first reading? 
The events in that reading took place roughly about 750 years before the birth of Christ. And the Assyrian Empire, from a part of the world which we now call northern Iraq, had grown powerful indeed. They were a warlike people, famous even in that violent part of the world for their destructiveness and their violence. And the Assyrian Empire had conquered the neighboring states around them, oftentimes coming close to exterminating the local culture. And just prior to what we read in today's first reading, King Sennacherib and his army went into the northern kingdom of Israel, conquered it, overthrew it, and deported its people and settled people from elsewhere into that land. This is where the expression, the lost tribes of Israel, come from. Because after this point, they basically disappear from history. And it is this king and his army that no state has been able to resist, that no other people has been able to overcome, has now set his eyes on the smaller kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, a kingdom consisting of just one of the 12 tribes. And he decides, I may as well complete it and take over all of the neighboring states. And so the great Assyrian army, victorious over all of the other powers, arrives outside the gates of Jerusalem. And there is no military power in Judah that is capable of resisting them. There is no military power at the king's disposal that would allow a successful battle against so large, so well-trained, and so ferocious an enemy. And the king knows this. And so it is that Sennacherib, the great emperor, sends this letter to Hezekiah, who bluntly put is not an important king. He's important in the Bible, but in terms of the political affairs of the world, Judah was not an important kingdom. It was the small kingdom, the weak kingdom. Its territory wasn't great, it wasn't wealthy, it wasn't mighty. And so he sends, as he often did, a letter to the ruler mocking him and saying, and who is it that's going to save you from me? What army do you have that can stand against mine? What hope do you have of resisting? or overcoming me. And then the mockery, and go ahead and call upon your God. Because no other nation's God has protected it from me, including Israel to your north, which worships your God. And just as he handed them over into my hand, he won't protect you from me. What an absolutely terrifying threat that is. And as we engage that, we suddenly recognize that we have here something more than a history lesson. 
Because if that's all this is, then we're just doing Bible study, and that's good, but that's not matter for Mass. Think of those situations in your life that you find to be most oppressive, most difficult to overcome, those realities where you feel surrounded by everything that's going wrong, those moments where day after day after day there's another reason to worry. Sometimes it can be as we deal with illness and the way illness multiplies the damage it does to our body and ourself. Sometimes it's because in the family there is a certain chaos that has settled in and we can't seem to escape it and we don't know our way out of it. Sometimes we can feel that the entire world around us is just crashing down into madness and there's nothing we can do to change that or fix it. That's the reality that we have placed before us here. And we often then sometimes have that experience, well, other people are praying and their prayers aren't answered. Why should mine be? And the world itself will mock us and say, and what good does it do to call upon God? Where has your faith gotten you if you're struggling with so much? Note how this letter of Sennacherib has all of these elements to it. I'm stronger than you. I'm greater than you. I'm in control, not you. And you can't stop me. Go ahead and pray, and what good is that going to do? Go ahead and go to church. What's that going to do? Because I'm here right now. What a remarkably frightening moment then this would have been. And Hezekiah, especially early in his reign, is not noted for a particularly strong faith. But to his credit, he is trying. Unlike the unfaithful kings to the north whose cry out to heaven was a mockery because they were unfaithful all their lives. And so here he turns and his response is not to surrender to fear, not to be premature with regard to making peace, but to fall onto his knees and in all of his imperfection to cry out with the honesty of his neediness. He doesn't trumpet how holy he is. He doesn't say, look how faithful I've been. But he does know that he will not let Sennacherib be the ruler over his heart, which still knows how to turn to the Lord. Note how wonderful that is. And so he turns and he cries out. And he receives an answer through the great prophet Isaiah, whose ministry spanned the reigns of a couple kings. And Isaiah, the well-known prophet, Isaiah, the prophet who speaks to kings, arrives in the palace and announces that the prayer has been heard. 
It's a beautifully mysterious oracle. On the one hand, beginning with a remnant, and it sounds like, wow, everything's going to be come crashing down and only a little bit's going to remain. But then he continues about how that's not happening now. And no power of yours can save you here. Fortunately, there is more than your power here and more than Sennacherib's. And so it is that Sennacherib, who very famously wrote, and we have the historical record of it, I have shut up Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird trapped in a cage. Even as he rejoices in the assembled power of his army and the imminent expansion of his empire, sees it all brought to nothing before they even reach the walls of the city. This is one of the truly remarkable interventions of the Lord on behalf of his people that we see in all of scripture. And it's funny, for all of the great miracles we grow up learning about and reading about, we never hear about this one. This one where the army is encamped around the city and is routed and defeated without Israel lifting a finger. How absolutely remarkable. And what does the Lord say? I will do this for the sake of David, for the sake of the one to whom I made a promise. I will protect the city. I will protect the people. And so again, we pause because that kingdom has long since passed away. And yet, the promise is still secure. Because we see as we look across history to 750 years later, something absolutely remarkable. Because in Nazareth of Galilee, there is the true virgin daughter of Zion. And note now the words of Isaiah. Because here now comes the remnant. Here now comes what is promised on that distant day so many hundreds of years earlier. Because the sinless virgin is conceived. She, that true living city of the Lord, in a world afflicted with and ravaged by sin. Sin does not penetrate her. The walls of virtue around her, the walls of grace around her, in a world that whispers and shouts and sings on a daily basis, come and fall with me. She remains sinless. She remains virtuous. She remains filled with grace. And into that city, that virgin daughter of Zion, the true king, son of God, son of David, son of Mary, will come. Note how wondrous, a greater king than Hezekiah, a greater king than David, enclosed and reigning within a greater city than Jerusalem ever was. How absolutely beautiful this is.
But note how again what we say about the sinlessness of Our Lady. How very much like the fortified city protected by the grace of God that we see in this miraculous incident in the Old Testament. Miraculously preserved, spiritually preserved, but preserved all the same. How wondrous for the sake of the promise that I have made. And it is from that city that the true king comes forth to stretch out his arms on the cross, to rise from the dead, and to bring us from death to life in a world which is so afflicted by the terrible and painful finality of death. And so we see here in our first reading a note. It's not a history lesson. It's not merely recalling an event from the past, because as everything that we encounter in the Old Testament, it is there at the service of what God will accomplish in Jesus, his son. So even though it happened so many hundreds of years before his birth in time, even as it happens, it points beyond itself to that greater moment when from the greater city, there will emerge the greater king who will indeed be victorious and triumphant. And it is that Jesus who speaks to us the challenging words that we have in our gospel reading today. And it's a curious collection of statements that seem oddly disconnected from one another as if Jesus is just bouncing thoughts off of his mind out to us. And yet the point he makes is a very important one, and it begins with the idea of respecting what you have been given. We're often not very good at this, we Christians. As much as we flatter ourselves that we're reverent and that we care for sacred things, we often do not. And this is where the Lord begins with that statement of don't throw your pearls before swine. Don't throw what is good out to the dogs. You know, and what a remarkably off-putting image that is. But what is he saying? Don't disrespect the grace you have been given. Don't disrespect your salvation. Don't disrespect your relationship with God by being careless with it, including by being careless with whom and how you share it. What an interesting idea because it cuts against the grain of our notion of all are welcome and all are valuable and God loves everybody. And there's Jesus saying, don't throw your pearls before swine. And we pause and say, how do I put these two things together? But Jesus is saying, and if we reflect on our own experience of sharing our faith in this complicated age we live in, we run into this. There are certain settings that aren't necessarily appropriate for you to witness at great length because of the disrespect with which you, what you give is going to be received. 
Choose a better time. Choose a better place. You know, famously in many of our families, we have that one relative who always has hundreds and hundreds of questions about religion. And he can exhaust you through the night with his questions, but will never commit to a thing because it's just entertainment. That's not the moment of sharing the intimate depth of my spiritual life. That's not the setting. The witness there should be a different one, a simpler one, and perhaps a firmer one than that. Note what the Lord is saying. If you engage in a conversation about your faith, make sure what you speak about is going to be respected. How often do we have conversations with our separated brothers and sisters who are not shy about sharing their faith with us, but as soon as we share anything Catholic, we find it under attack? And we never challenge them on that and say, why can't you respect me like I respect you? Note what the Lord is saying. He's not saying ignore people, but he is saying be careful with it. And especially with the deep elements of your relationship with God, because those are not to be shared indiscriminately. Don't open yourself too quickly in the wrong setting. Save that for the right moment. Save that for the right time. Because what is precious needs to be respected, needs to be valued, needs to be preserved. And oftentimes when we do it wrongly, we find ourselves leaving those settings and those conversations troubled, angry, frustrated, and the peace of the gospel has been polluted by the context out of which we've just emerged. And so then he continues and says, treat others as you would have them treat you. So note, he's not saying treat others like they're swine or dogs. But he is saying, have your eyes open. But extend the dignity, extend the courtesy that is right. And that is so very hard to do. And it's in this context of respect that he gives us this teaching of the narrow way. Because the easy way, the common way, the popular way is the wrong way. We forget this all the time because we love the popular thing. We love the common thing. We love the way that's so maximally inclusive, it can mean anything we want it to mean. And Jesus says, but that's not the right way. The way that leads to life is found by few. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the majority of people are lost and will be always lost. It means that on any given day, very few of us are on the right path. Because it's harder to find. It's harder to enter. It's harder to live. Because the way to life is challenging and demanding and does cost us something. But it's the way that leads to life. And that is its own reward. 
the reward of knowing, difficult as it may be, the direction of my life is correct. Note how wonderful that is. And the Lord in this teaching about respecting what you've been given, don't share in a way where it becomes diminished. This teaching about treating others the way you would want them to treat you, Note how those become the signs that I really am walking along the narrow way, that I've found it, that I've committed to it. And again, now we come to Isaiah's idea of the remnant, the few who find the right way in and through Jesus Christ and commit themselves to walking it, because that is the way that leads to the heavenly Jerusalem, which death and sin and sickness and sorrow and no earthly power can ever overcome or even enter. But those who walk that narrow way, they are guaranteed to be received. And what a wonderful gift that is. Amen.